Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's podcast, we're bringing you insights from three reoccurring guests, portfolio managers David Wolf and David Tolk with institutional portfolio manager Alain Colette. David, David, and Alain actually met years ago while working at the Bank of Canada. Together today, they manage $80 billion for Canadian investors, while the overarching global asset allocation team they are a part of manages $200 billion of assets. So today they join host Pat Bolland to share who they are and what they manage. Additionally, they'll unpack inflation and the possibility of a recession, among other topics. This discussion was recorded in front of a live audience at a recent event for financial advisors, with the panel fielding questions from the audience and also displaying a few slides. This podcast was recorded on December 8th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Seems only appropriate that as we begin this journey over the next couple of days, we have the three wise men. <laughs> Isn't that great? It took me a while to come up with that. <laughs> okay, we talked about $80 billion, but Ilan, I'm gonna start with you because what exactly do you manage and how do you do it? Thanks very much, Pat, for that, uh, for that question. It's really great to be here in Orlando and, and see everyone here in the room, and hello to everyone virtually. So that's a great place for us to start. What do we actually do, right? A question I get often. We manage the Canadian asset allocation products for Canadian investors, right? So these are our fund of funds. And really, I think while we all know, you know, the benefits of combining different types of assets in portfolios uh, to smooth out the ups and downs that the market may provide, well, or in, this, in, the, in the case of this year, the downs and downs, um, you know, what we really try to do here is we don't pick individual stocks or credits. But what we do do is we lean in or out of asset classes and we pick underlying managers, right? And so what we've done, what we do there is we combine the asset classes and the underlying managers in a very balanced way so that we have, you know, a wide range of funds for a wide range of investors so that I can use the term wide range three times in one sentence. <laughs> uh, and, and, and what you see, the suite of funds is what we have here, you know, on the slide in front of, in front of you. Okay, so I want to focus on just that top left-hand corner, the uh, managed portfolios. Uh, how are they different than some of the other uh, assets that you manage? Yeah, so, you know, the managed portfolios are, are a great place for us to sort of click into. They really are the flagship fund-of-fund fund capabilities that we have that really, I would say, display the capabilities that we have access to. And there are really two pieces to that. The first is the security selection element, right? And so the security selection element uh, is, and I think we have another slide for this, the security selection element is what the stock and bond pickers are doing that we use in the funds that, that we manage. Um, and again, here we're able to go across 
the full breadth of fidelity to access fund managers of different styles um, and, and of different asset classes. And so that's what they're doing. And the second element is the asset allocation part, which is where we follow our four pillar process, which, which David will talk more to, and lean in or out of asset classes, currencies, regions, styles, to really try to um, sort of effect change in terms of the cumulative return. And then what we, what, what we do is we combine those two things together, and that's what you see on this chart here. So the cumulative difference coming from these two elements is meaningful for investor returns uh, since we moved to this structure uh, almost 10 years ago, uh, as you can see on this chart, right? With asset allocation adding uh, almost 9% and security selection adding almost 12%, that cumulative difference over time is, is quite meaningful. So we're not gonna outperform every day or, or perhaps even every month or year, but there is a meaningful difference to this approach over time, as you can see on this chart. Okay, David Wolf, let's walk through exactly how you do that, and how you put together that security selection. Never mind your asset allocation. Yes, so I'll talk a little bit about both. Uh, first of all, let me add my welcome uh, to everyone. Thank you for joining us, including uh, or uh, I was going to say on the phone, but now we're, you know, 21st <laughs> modern century technology, is, David. This is video. Thank you for that. Um, so first, let me talk a little bit about uh, another way of thinking about Alon's comments in terms of what we actually do, mm. and then I'll get to how we do it, uh, so to speak. Uh, so the analogy that I'd like to use, and I think a lot of folks in the room and, and joining us remotely have heard this before, um, but we're kind of like the hockey coach for the funds. Um, so the players on the ice are the equity portfolio managers, the bond portfolio managers, folks that you're going to hear from the rest of today and tomorrow. And they're the ones on the ice, and obviously what they do is, is critically important to the success of the team, the fund. But we're the ones who are responsible for the team as a whole, or the fund as a whole. And we're doing the kinds of things that hockey coaches would do. So we're choosing the lines, you know, making sure we have complementary portfolio managers in a strategy. Uh, we're deciding who gets ice time. Mm. Uh, in terms of who's going to be best suited to outperform in a given market environment. And we're thinking about, do we want more of an offensive game plan or a defensive game plan? We know that we have talented players, and so really our job is to get the most out of those players, again, doing the kinds of things that, that a hockey coach would do. So how do we make those decisions uh, in terms of both the active allocation and asset classes and choosing the managers? There are really two elements to the approach that we take. Uh, the first element is having a well-founded view. And that largely comes from our asset allocation research team. So we have 23 research analysts based in Boston, and all they do is asset allocation work. And they're coming up with forecasts, everything from the next inflation number to 20-year real return projections for basically every asset class in the world. Um, they're very good at what they do, and their work is really the foundation of how we think about asset allocation in, in the various funds. But the second element is thinking about the forecasts and the models. So I've been essentially a forecaster for 27 years now professionally, and the paramount thing that I've learned about forecasting is it's really, really hard. Mm. And the reason it's really hard is because uh, if you think about the models that people use for forecasting, what you're really trying to do is boil down uh, the decisions of billions of not-so-rational people making trillions of decisions every day into a couple of simple equations. Um, and it's ridiculous to think you can do that accurately and, and precisely. And even if you could, you know, relationships change, new things happen. 
And so you can't assume that the future is going to look exactly like the past, which is what these models do. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to make the best forecasts that we can, but what we're also doing is running the models, pulling them apart, and understanding where and how they're going to be wrong, because they're always wrong. They're models. And if we can do that, then we can understand where markets who are relying on those models will also be wrong and take high conviction positions to basically take advantage of that gap. So if, if I can take a moment to give an example of how we've done that. So if you go back late last year, we were strongly of the view that inflation was going to be persistent. So why did we have this view? We knew that demand was very strong because the government basically created a bunch of money and gave it to people. And we knew that supply was constrained, not only supply chain issues, but labor scarcity, commodity shortages, et cetera. So more demand than supply, prices are going to go up, which is what happened. And there was no reason to expect that any of that was going to change. Mm. So we had the view that inflation was going to be persistent. Markets and central banks were of the view that inflation was transitory. And the way that we could understand that and why that was going to be wrong is the models that most people use to forecast inflation don't have supply curves in them, mm. which is insane because that's half of the inflation equation. But what had happened was for 40 years, supply was never really an issue in inflation. It was all demand shocks. So what the modeler said is our models are getting super complicated and why don't we take out stuff that doesn't seem to matter, like supply. So the models were never going to be able to see inflation that was partly coming from those supply constraints. So what we were able to do is say, inflation is going to be persistent, markets think it's transitory, and we understand why they're going to make that mistake. And so we acted in terms of our asset allocation. We added commodities, we added gold, we bought tips and real return bonds to sell nominal bonds. Uh, we held more Canada than we usually do because of the resource linkage. And what we also did is said, we know that central banks are eventually going to have to respond to this higher inflation with tighter policy, and that's going to be very difficult. So we reduced our equity beta, we reduced our interest rate exposure, we held more cash than we usually do. Now, as it's turned out, central banks have been a lot more aggressive than we or anybody else had thought. I mean, I remember this time last year, us sitting around and talking about, is it going to be five hikes, six hikes? It's been 20 hikes of a quarter point, 400 basis points in total. And markets have had a hard time with that. But by making these asset allocation shifts beforehand, we were able to at least mitigate some of the damage in the funds. It's, it sounds to me like you changed the model, if you will. How often does that actually happen? So we didn't change the model and the approach and the process. What we did is understand where the models that other people are using are going to go wrong and use that to feed into our own allocation decisions. And if, if the question is more sort of how often do we do that? Mm. So we don't have a, unlike I think a lot of other folks, we don't have a set schedule for rebalancing an asset allocation shift. There's not a you know, monthly or quarterly meeting where we say, okay, we're going to adjust and then not look at it again for another three months. We're trading when we think it's appropriate to trade, and we're rebalancing both with respect to benchmark and with respect to our active views when we think we should do that. Now, that may be once a week or once a month or once every three months, because we know we don't want to be trading needlessly and trying to be too fine about things. We have a long-term horizon. But when we think that there is a gap that we can exploit to add return and manage risk in the funds, we'll, we'll do that. I, I do want to get to the position, but I do also want to cover that hockey analogy, because a lot of us are hockey fans. 
how often do you actually interact with the players? You know, like some coaches sit on the bench and don't do anything <laughs> with the players and some, you know what I mean? The actual portfolio managers. Well, th there's always a guy at the end of the bench that we don't talk to. <laughs> um, but uh, for the... <laughs> that wasn't you ever, I guess. No, <laughs> no comment. But no, for the most part, I mean, we, one of the great things about the seat that we have is that the managers that we're essentially hiring in these strategies are not arm's length. They're our friends, they're our colleagues, we talk to them all the time. We sit in Toronto, where the Canadian equity team is largely located, uh, as well as in Montreal. Uh, my colleague Jeff Stein, who's our co-manager, sits in Boston, where a lot of our uh, US equity managers, our fixed income managers who are up in New Hampshire, uh, are located, and we're talking every day to folks. Now, we have approximately 80 underlying equity and fixed income PMs in the strategy, so mm -hmm. obviously we're not talking to them every day, everyone, but we know what they're thinking, they know what we're thinking, and that, that resonance is actually a really big part of the value proposition because rather than sort of sitting in a corner and saying, do I like high yield, do I not like high yield, we go talk to the high yield manager and we understand what's happening in their market and the guidance they're gonna be able to give us in terms of the prospects for that asset class. And we use that as part of the mosaic in terms of making the decision, how much of that do we want, how much equities, how much investment grade fixed income, et cetera. I could have this discussion for a long time, but I do want to get but to position. David, David, <laughs> yeah. David Talk, I do want to talk to you about uh, positioning and what you're thinking right now as compared to the past, for instance. And, and I know you've got a tremendous graph that illustrates yep. that. No, absolutely. Well, let me also just extend my welcome to everybody in the room and everybody um, at home as well. So this is really where uh, the theory is uh, put into practice. So before we go through each of the individual bars on the slide you see in front of you, I just wanted to take a moment and remind everybody of our four-pillar process that um, Alon had highlighted in his in introductory remarks. So we look at the world uh, through these four pillars. So it, those pillars are the macro, the bottom-up, valuation and sentiment. And each of those can give conflicting or confirming evidence. So it's really the art of what we do to assess the different signals from each to try to find the optimal allocation, both overweights and underweights relative to benchmark, but also out of benchmark allocations uh, where appropriate as well. So let me just go through each of those four pillars. Uh, DW highlighted a few of the, the macro challenges that we're currently uh, experiencing. And yes, I think the macro is a particularly daunting outlook. So we've had the inflation issue, certainly. We've seen the central bank response to that inflation threat. And we're now in the midst of experiencing the economic aftermath of tighter monetary policy. So we'll certainly have a chance to talk about hard and soft landings, but I think a landing is, is fairly inevitable. Uh, given what the policy landscape has, has given us. So if you look at the macro exclusively, it would tell you that, you know what, you need to be very defensive. You need to prepare for that inevitable recession. You need to see and expect further downside for equities, potentially more weakness uh, for bonds as central bank policy continues to tighten. And that, again, is a pretty scary outlook. But if we look at that, in conjunction with the other three pillars, you end up with a little bit more of a nuanced view. So when we talk to all of our underlying managers, and you'll have the pleasure of doing that today as well with uh, the later speakers, generally corporate fundamentals are stronger now than they've been going into prior downturns. 
Part of that is a function of the interest rates landscape where a lot of corporations use the opportunity provided by very low interest rates to term out their debt to reduce their financial vulnerability going into a period of slower demand. Corporations generally have also had some success in passing through the impact of higher input prices onto consumers. So that inflation story that very much impacts the consumer side of the economy has maybe less of an impact on the margin side of the corporate uh, structure or corporate fundamentals more broadly. So that's a little bit more encouraging. And as we talk about a recession and a slowdown in growth, this has been something that, yeah, we spent a fair length of time going through. So the extent to which corporations are seeing this coming and can take proactive steps today to pre prepare their businesses for that slowdown in growth is something that we've seen that ultimately, I think, leaves the corporate sector in a better position. So when we take that as a counterpart to the macro outlook, we can say, well, we want to be defensive, but we don't need to be max defensive because of these better fundamentals. And similarly, when we look at the valuation pillar, and we've seen certainly some cheapening in asset classes over the course of the year, and for us, that suggests that if there is another downside surprise or something else goes bump in the night, it means that there's less room maybe perhaps for those asset classes to fall further. Because valuation is not going to be a timing tool, but it gives you a sense of vulnerability. So if there's a catalyst that's triggered, if something's exceedingly expensive, it will need to fall further than if something is more reasonably priced. So when we look at that across a whole host of asset classes, we come to the conclusion that markets are fairer now than they would have been at extremes, perhaps at the start of the year. So that can tell us, well, all right, we don't need to be as defensive to prepare against that uh, potentially significant drawdown in asset prices. And then finally, sentiment. So sentiment for us is a contrarian indicator. We pay a lot of attention to the positioning in the market. We pay a lot of attention to uh, surveys of investor feelings, how they look at the market. And it's a contrarian indicator insofar as if everybody is on one side of the boat, we don't want to be there. We want to lean the other way. So if sentiment is very much washed out, which it's been for most of this year, we want to maybe be on the other side of that because the prospect for a bear market rally, such as we've seen until very recently, and we saw another bear market rally in the summer of this year, you know, those are very powerful and can be very much driven by extreme sentiment and extreme negativity. So things don't necessarily need to get better to drive that bear market rally. Things just need to get a little bit less worse. And you can see that with a couple of recent CPI prints where the CPI story is still daunting and scary, but because it was a little bit less than what the market had expected, markets really took off as a result of that. So that, as a sentiment indicator for us, says, well, again, we need to prepare the portfolios for potential periods of bear market rallies. And, and that's, again, a driver for uh, how, we've, how we've structured these, these allocations. So, what does that look like in terms of uh, our global balanced portfolio? So the slide in front of you, hopefully, is everybody's favorite slide over the whole presentation and over all of the presentations. So, so far today. So far today, yes. Well, I don't want to diminish Alon's slides earlier. But, um, so this is uh, the positioning for our global balanced managed portfolio. So this is a 60-40 fund. About two-thirds of the benchmark is outside of Canada. 
Um, all the bars you see are the overweights and underweights to different equity regions as well as to fixed income asset classes. And we wanted to show you also how the positioning has evolved over the course of the year. So the diamonds you see on the slide are where we were basically at the end of um, last year. So again, when we look at the overall uh, 10,000 foot positioning, you can see we are underweight um, equities. And even more underweight than the, the bottom of the slide would indicate because that includes an allocation to commodity producers, which we know are not maybe traditional equities in the way that uh, you might think of, of, of those other regions. So that calibration is maybe about you know, halfway in terms of how underweight we could potentially be. And that again reflects the nuance of taking the macro view and comparing it to uh, the other three pillars. So that degree of moderate defensiveness comes across both in terms of how we see the underweight um, to equities, and we can dig into some of the regional allocations in, in a little bit later on, but we also have uh, a, defensiveness, a defensive view expressed in how we see the outlook for interest rates, so we're underweight uh, investment grade. And you can see that defensiveness also expressed in that short-term allocation. So you can see that's been a sizable increase over the course of this year, which is the response to a market where both equities and bonds have struggled. And it's a way that gives us also uh, dry powder to be able to respond to opportunities you know, as they present themselves over the next year or so. And part of that short-term allocation, actually most of that short-term allocation is also in US dollars. So that comes across in the underweight we have to the Canadian dollar, which you see on the very right-hand side of the presentation. So that enhances the defensiveness, given the fact that the US dollar is that flight to quality, flight to safety type of currency. So we know when markets are under pressure, the Canadian dollar most notably tends to depreciate dramatically as a high beta to global growth. So to have that protection into the US dollar is another way that we can enhance the defensiveness uh, of the overall positioning. So I know that's a lot of information and there's definitely more bars that we can dig into, but uh, let me just turn it back to you. Well, actually, I want to unpack that a little bit because when I do look at that short term, it makes sense, right? You go to a safe haven over a short term and, and as you point out, keep your powder dry. What I'm most interested is Canadian investment grade equities have not, they're sitting at almost 7%. Do you have ranges that you limit yourself to? Or are you at the max in that Canadian underweight? Yeah, so the, by the prospectus, I mean, we can tilt these portfolios, um, stocks versus bonds, up to 10, 15% in that range. And again, we're not going to necessarily take that full range, uh, given the nuance of the view across the pillars. So again, we've tried to calibrate each of these allocations to balance both the return potential, uh, both positive and negative, with the amount of risk and tracking error we want to express relative to the benchmark. So you can see how, again, some of these positions have evolved as our views around different asset classes have evolved, but some of them also can reflect longer horizon perspectives. So for instance, being underweight investment grade is something we basically consistently had, partly for the view, but also because we want to allocate to credit and spread sectors, for instance. So these are plus sectors that we have a lot of confidence in the managers. It's a way to enhance diversification relative to that standard 60-40 portfolio. And it's a way, again, we can add a little bit of yield and we can provide for that uh, greater allocation both across geographies as well as asset classes. David Wolf, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I mean, one way to, to, I guess, think about the underweight to investment grade and the diversification there is the broader question about 
uh, 60-40 and particularly the role that fixed income plays in a portfolio. So what we've seen over the, the past year, and, and everybody has witnessed this, is the problem has not been so much that stocks have been down and bonds have been down, but they've gone down together, right? So you haven't had this nice hedging capacity that you've seen in other equity drawdowns when your bond portfolio goes up. The reason that's happened is you've had a burst of inflation volatility. So most of the past 40 years, the economic shocks, so to speak, that we've gotten are growth shocks, mm. which send stocks up and bonds down or vice versa. So you get the negative correlation. With inflation volatility, you get a positive correlation because inflation is bad for both stocks and bonds. So that's what's happened this year with them going down together. So we need to think, you know, at least in our judgment, more creatively about how we play defense, how we provide diversification. So one of the reasons that we're as underweight as we are in investment grade credit is because we think there are other areas that can be better in terms of diversifying and protecting. Inflation protection is one. Um, in terms of tips and RRBs. Short term is another in terms of having more cash to be able to not only defend the portfolio, but take advantage of particular washouts because often those opportunities don't last very long. And as DT mentioned, the US dollar in particular. So if we look at stuff that's negatively correlated to equities, there's not much out there. The US dollar is one. It's not only that flight to quality bid, but also the reason that markets have been under stress primarily is the Fed raising rates, and those higher U.S. interest rates are also good for the U.S. dollar over time, not so much in the last uh, couple of months or so. So uh, all to say that the underweights that we have to investment grade credit are a recognition that just blindly buying fixed income and assuming that it's going to protect you doesn't work nearly as well in this environment. So we need to be more creative in terms of that diversification. Uh, I'm just going to quickly, we're starting to get questions in, and that's great because uh, we can turn to those questions uh, now. But before we do, Ilan's an expert in inflation because David, David talks about an inflationary environment. Talk to me about inflation, why we have it, what's happening to it right now. Yeah, sure. So that... Um that's another great question, and uh, I, spent, I spent many, many years thinking about inflation. I really think there are three questions, and they've evolved, right? So they've changed over the last little while, and it really is what's going on right now with inflation, why should I care, and what are we doing about it? Um, so what's happening right now with inflation? You know, I think we can see with some hindsight that really the only thing that was transitory was the word transitory, right? There was no way that, there was no way that inflation was transitory. And what happened through the pandemic, uh, and some of you have probably, have probably heard um, Andrew Marchese talk about this, through the pandemic, when we were locked down and we had major supply chain problems, we bought all the Pelotons and air fryers we could because that's the <laughs> only thing we could buy, right? Those are good compliments. And, um, and the prices for those things, because of supply chain issues, went straight up, right? And now those are coming back down to earth very, very quickly. So to put it in perspective, for the 20 years pre-pandemic, the average year-over-year -year change for goods prices, apparel, cars, was zero, right? That was the, it was a flat line for 20 years. And the average price increase post-pandemic, or since, since the start of the pandemic, has been 5%. So it's very, very odd for the things we buy in stores to just not get cheaper every year. And, and so that was, you know, the, so the stats were sort of broken that way. Uh, those prices are now coming back to normal. Um, you know, car, used car prices are coming back to normal. Uh, clothing is coming off. Sorry, sorry. Clothing prices are coming off, and um, and and things, you know, things are things are sort of receding back to zero. 
And that's 25% of the underlying inflation pie. Um, some of you caught that. Uh, and 75% and, uh, and, and of the inflation pie are service prices. And that's what's really important. The most important determinant of the price of a service is the price you pay the person doing the service, the wage. And in a very, very tight labor market like we're seeing right now, wages have moved much higher. Uh, and service prices have pushed much higher as well. So in fact, the inflation picture right now, in my view, is more troubling than it was a year ago because the easy stuff has come off and we're left with very sticky, sort of slow to adjust inflation numbers that require pretty difficult decision from central banks. So that's what's happening right now with inflation and the reason we think it will remain elevated for at least another year. Very quickly, the second thing is, why do we care? We care because of what something uh, DW mentioned, which is inflation volatility, right? So inflation volatility and elevated inflation destroys that nice property between stocks and bonds that these multi-asset class uh, portfolios, well, really all multi-asset class investing relies on, which is stocks provide um, opportunity in periods of growth and bonds provide some protection in periods of stress. That gets destroyed in the presence of elevated inflation or elevated inflation volatility. And then the last question is, what are you doing about it? And that speaks to what DT talked about, which is owning asset classes that protect investors or, or inoculate these portfolios against the damaging effects of inflation, things like commodity producers and on the fixed income side, you know, fixed income instruments and asset classes that, that protect against inflation. So I know there's a lot there, but really the takeaway for us is, we just don't believe inflation is going to subside back to the 2% that we enjoyed for the 25 years pre-pandemic. It's going to require some fairly difficult decisions from, from central banks, which we've seen, um, but they're going to remain at that, that high level until, until labor markets adjust. Is part of that kind of like behavioral finance, I mean, romaine lettuce goes from 3 bucks to $12. It's not going back to 3 at any time soon. Yeah, so, I mean, th there's a lot under the surface there. I mean, what people should understand is slowing inflation just means that prices are going up at a slower rate, right? So nothing's going on sale. It just means things are going to get worse slower. I mean, maybe that's my glass half full mentality, but, um, <laughs> you know, there will be some adjustments, but the, the real problem is, again, you know, my 80-year-old father-in-law goes to Costco every week and tells me the price of all the things that have changed and gone up and down. And that's great, and that's interesting that I have a kind of on-the-ground price agent, but... Um, but, but really, it's much more important what they're paying the person at the cash who's checking out your stuff than the stuff on the shelves. The price of, of people, the price of wages, matters much more for underlying inflation than um, romaine lettuce. Excellent point. Yep. Although I love my Caesars. Uh, we are getting questions from the app, so please continue that. How, how often do you change the underlying funds and incorporate new fund offerings? DT, do you want to? I'm sure. Yeah, so uh, we're always really happy to have capabilities provided to us. And uh, we have a great product support team uh, that exists within Fidelity that if there's a capability that exists somewhere in the world that Fidelity is operating, we can find a clone or, or have a version of that provided to us as, uh, as asset allocators. So if there are ways that we can enhance the return capabilities of the funds through time, if there are ways that we can provide 
additional forms of diversification, we will jump at those opportunities. So recent examples, certainly uh, when Will Danoff's Insights Fund was launched in Canada, it was a diversifying capability to our existing US lineup. So we definitely uh, incorporated his portfolio uh, into ours. A uh, little bit more uh, murky part of the portfolio, so on emerging market debt. So uh, we use both a hard dollar, a US dollar emerging market debt allocation, but there's also a, a local currency capability uh, available that was run out of London. And that is an interesting complement to our portfolios because you get the yield pickup, but you also get the FX correlation with the Canadian dollar. So having that capability and working with our product team to bring that in to our portfolios was something that we were uh, certainly able to do. So. The short answer is we're always looking to add new capabilities. We're going to be certainly very responsible in how we bring in new allocations. So for a new capability, we want to spend some time evaluating it, understanding how it operates in different market cycles. But if there's something that we can bring to enhance the investor experience, we're absolutely going to do that. So if I can just add to that briefly. So that's the adding part. Um, there's a subtracting part as well. We don't just set and forget and put managers in and, and don't evaluate the performance far from it. We generally try to allocate in terms of underlying managers in a steady way. So we find the best managers of fidelity, we fund them, we let them go do their thing, and then we calibrate that funding depending on our views of their particular asset class, their style, um, et cetera. We do have occasion from time to time to take managers out. And generally speaking, that evaluative process, and we have a manager research component of our asset allocation research team to, to help us with that. It's generally not purely from a performance point of view. So obviously we never like to have underperforming managers, but if we understand their approach, we understand their process and have confidence that you know, maybe their style is out of favor or their smaller cap and larger cap has been doing well, you know, we're gonna keep them in there in terms of the balance that they provide in the portfolio. The only time that we tend to take managers out is if they're doing something other than what they said they would do in the sense that when we run these multi-asset class portfolios, every single capability has a role, and we need everybody, you know, to go back to the hockey analogy, we need everybody on the team to play their part, right? And so if someone says, well, I'm a large cap tech investor, but they're buying, you know, little energy companies, that's something different from what we're expecting, and so we need that capability to do what it's supposed to do, so we may remove a manager for that reason. Hmm. Can you provide your thoughts on where we are in terms of the business cycle and where you see the global economy heading in 2023? I don't know who wants to tackle that. I can start with that. Um, and we can actually even bring the positioning slide um, back on the screen because this will help animate the regional equity allocation. So basically, you know, as we've described the macro uh, previously, we are you know, very much in the late cycle of uh, this particular economic cycle. And we're teetering certainly on the risk of recession. And this is something that really comes up often in conversations is something that's uh, been debated extensively in the media in terms of recession, yes, no, uh, recession, hard, soft, recession, short, long. But ultimately, I think the recession is inevitable. Uh, and that's largely because of what policymakers need to do. So Alon touched on this earlier, that if inflation is going to be more persistent, especially the sticky parts of core inflation, where it takes a long time for the trend in underlying inflation to get back to the central bank target that they're comfortable with, it means that policy is going to stay a lot higher for longer as well. So 
you know, we certainly had you know, the Bank of Canada's meeting that might maybe hinted at the prospect of, of slowing or maybe even stopping the rate of policy increases. But for anyone thinking that they're going to be quick to cut interest rates in response to the first sign of economic weakness, I think those hopes are dramatically misplaced. The far likely scenario is that central banks will need to keep policy tight for a long time to make sure that not only does inflation come back to target, but expectations of future inflation uh, will also uh, remain anchored at the low and stable levels that we've enjoyed in recent decades. So that just means that policy stays tight. And I should mention that central banks, you know, they're not evil, malicious people, and we've all worked at a central bank, so I think hopefully everybody would agree with that. But <laughs> They there are a few who are evil militia. <laughs> you're, really, you're really optimistic there. <laughs> um, but really what central banks need to do, job number one is to bring inflation back. So the inevitable consequence of that is that, yes, they need to drive economic growth lower. They need to drive demand down to meet supply. And that involves labor market losses and a contracting economy. So this is not something that central banks necessarily want to do. They would love to pull off that fabled soft landing. It's just exceptionally difficult. So as a result, we're going to see a recession. So the question then is, well, you know, how severe? And I think the severity of the recession comes down to the interest rate sensitivity of different regions around the world. So if you're a really highly levered, vulnerable economy, you're going to experience a worse outcome than an economy that maybe has less debt on its collective balance sheet. So going back to the Canadian or the regional equity allocations, you can see we've got the highest conviction view in terms of an equity allocation as an underweight to Canada. Because as we've talked about at great length, we see dramatic vulnerabilities on the part of household balance sheets. Now we've whistled by the graveyard through 2008 when the US went through their adjustment. We have a level of debt that's entirely unsustainable. And now we have a catalyst in terms of higher interest rates to bring that back. So in terms of an economic region that's going to experience perhaps a longer or more significant recession, Canada certainly is at the top of the list. And then on the other side of the equation, you can look at the United States, which not only has a structurally different mortgage market with longer amortization for, for mortgages, so they're arguably less rate sensitive, but they also took their medicine. You look at levels of household debt uh, in the US and they're materially lower than those of Canada. So all things equal, and, it's, and we can also talk about the defensiveness of the US, but at least through the macro lens of a, of a recession ex expectation, you could say it could probably be far less severe in the United States because of that less interest rate sensitivity in the face of tighter monetary policy. And then with Europe and the international allocation, certainly there are issues that remain on sovereign balance sheets in terms of government balance sheets. Europe faces ongoing geopolitical uncertainties as well. So as a rate sensitivity, you know, I could see that as being an area of vulnerability and that motivates the underweight we have as well. And then in terms of a little bit of offense, so DW talked about as a hockey coach, we want to balance offense and defense. The extent to which we have a little bit of an optimistic overweight to emerging markets, that can reflect a more advanced economic cycle. So we talked about the rest of the world in late cycle verging on recession. Today, China is clearly in a recession, but if there is any relaxation in terms of uh, the zero COVID policy, if there's more stimulus working its way through the Chinese economy, which we've seen in periodic uh, announcements recently, that could put EM in a better position. Obviously, EM can't grow 
exclusively without the rest of the world. So it's a pretty tight elastic that binds the two regions together. But again, looking for a bit of relative optimism, you could point to the emerging markets, especially with an active manager that doesn't need to take benchmark exposures to different countries. That can give you an opportunity to be a little bit more uh, opportunistic and and have a bit more offense in your allocations. If I could just briefly add to that. So I think with respect to recession, and, and we have the view that, that it's maybe not imminent, but in the fullness of time that that's where we're headed because that's where central banks want and need us to go, uh, to be very clear about a, what a recession is and what it isn't. Because a lot of what I hear around is, how can we go into recession when everybody's out there spending, stores are jammed, restaurants are jammed, unemployment is very low, there are help wanted signs everywhere. That's not consistent with what we think of as a recession. And I, I think the, the key insight I would want to offer is you have to separate out level from rate of change. So the level of economic activity is very high, clearly. Everybody has a job, well, almost everybody has a job, unemployment is very low, spending power is very high, and in fact it's unsustainably high, and so much so that it's generating inflation. So what central banks are trying to do is pull that level back to a more sustainable level, and that means the economy has to go backwards, which is a recession. So to, to be clear, that doesn't mean that things have to get really bad the way we would associate a recession, you know, for example, in the, the early 1990s in, in much of Canada or, you know, the 2007, 2008, at least for a brief period and in the U.S. Um, it's just things getting less good. So maybe that's a bit of a tempering of some of the, you know, admittedly more challenging or, or less optimistic elements that we've talked about this morning. Um, things are really, really good now economically, and they can get somewhat less good in a recession and still be relatively supportive of, as we talked about, uh, corporate earnings and, and the overall market. It's interesting, corporate earnings, especially in the tech sector, came out, and then all of a sudden there's job cuts all over the place. I mean, it's adjusting as quickly as interest rates move up, isn't it? Uh, not quite as quickly, so that, that's one of the challenges. So we all have been central bankers, and one of the challenges is everything works with a lag. So to your point, you get earnings out from a tech company, stock moves within a minute, you know, and yeah. certainly by the end of the day it adjusts. The labor market takes months, if not years, to adjust. Inflation, which is based on those changes in unemployment and changes in activity and the demand that companies are seeing versus supply, that can take a couple of years to manifest itself. Mm. And housing is even longer. So we haven't talked about it. We can, we can talk about uh, the Canadian housing market a little bit um, if folks are interested. But that takes years to clear. As years, because you need the rolling on of all of these interest rate increases to actually affect people's decision-making, affect affordability. You have to have folks who are willing to say, my house was worth $900,000 a year ago. Why isn't it still worth $900,000? And then they don't sell it and nothing happens, which is kind of where we are right now. And then eventually you get this decline. So the challenge is stock markets clear really fast economies take a lot longer to adjust, which is why the central banks have to try to anticipate that in, in making policy. Got a question on your thoughts on the 60-40 portfolio going forward. So I, I think we, we talked about this um, a, a bit earlier with respect to, you know, 60-40 is not dead, but you need to be a lot more thoughtful about the 40. You can't just, you know, index a bunch of fixed income into treasuries, Canada's investment-grade corporates and think that that's going to protect you you have to be a little bit more creative in the kinds of asset classes that are going to provide both the income and the defense. 
And again, as we said, one of the nice things about our seat is we have access to a lot of those different asset classes. Uh, DT mentioned uh, emerging market local currency debt where yields are about 350 basis points higher than you can get domestically and you can match the currencies. Jeff Moore, Mike Plage are going to be speaking. I think it's later this morning who run a lot of our bond money and they have access to you know floating rate notes. They look at high yield where coupons are 10%. You can do a lot of damage to high yield bond prices that can still be covered by that 10% coupon yield. So you just have to be a bit more creative in terms of how you get income and how you provide defense because bonds are not going to be able to play quite the role that they have over the past, call it 20 years. If I can add just a little bit on terms of one of the other ways you can be creative, I mean, you can use currency. So as you saw, we you know, are underweight Canadian dollars, and that's a sense that if you think about you know, how far fixed income can rally, I mean, you're bumping up against a zero yield at some point, whereas there's nothing stopping the Canadian dollar from falling much further in the event of a truly adverse shock. So not only do we try to get diversification within the bond side of the portfolio, but providing that currency overlay is another really important way to enhance the defensive aspect and to provide insurance into a portfolio that bonds just can't necessarily do to in the extreme scenario. Okay, we've got four minutes left, but I'd like thoughts from Yap. Uh, gold and housing, which one do you want to tackle first? I, I can hit on gold quickly. Okay. Um, and then maybe start with housing and pass it to my colleagues. So, um, yeah, gold has been interesting, right? So there is no other asset class where we have hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands of years of data to show how fantastic it is against protecting against inflation. And some would argue, I think, as that question would suggest, that it really hasn't done its job, right? And, and so we, we still believe that gold is an effective inflation hedge. It's almost 10% of our inflation-focused fund. And there's a couple of answers there. The first is it actually has been a pretty decent hedge against inflation because it hasn't gone down as much as other asset classes. And right now, Pat, you're thinking, oh, that's kind of a weak answer. But that actually is, <laughs> right? Like, I, I, I get it. But that has, that's, that's the truth, right? So it has been uh, defensive in terms of its, you know, its protection uh, in portfolios against other asset classes. Um, the second thing I would note here, and this is an area of a, of a pretty intense research internally at Fidelity, specifically in Boston, is what is the role of crypto, for example, in relation to gold, right? So is it possible, for example, and, and the question still remains, is it possible that those two asset classes have similar investors interested in them and that maybe, um, you know, the, the folks interested in crypto took some of the shine away from gold? Pardon the dad joke, but, you know, took some of the shine away from gold. Um, the, we don't really have a firm answer there, but that is um, an interesting sort of avenue of research. Very quickly, I'll jump to housing and then I'll pass it off to my colleagues who, who will have thoughts. Housing has done way too much of the heavy lifting in the Canadian economy for probably 20 years. It's too large a share of GDP, of, of employment, and the amount of cumulative rate hikes we've had, if this doesn't meaningfully change the Canadian housing market, I don't know what would, right? So this is... Uh, the largest cumulative increase in rate hikes in a calendar year in the history of the data. And, you know, when I was at the Bank of Canada a long time ago, I wrote a paper examining the determinants of housing market cycles, either housing markets going like this or like this. And the single most important determinant was the cost of borrowing, right? So similar to buying a car, you don't buy the, you don't buy the price of the car, you buy the payment. And a lot of people have thought the same way about housing. But my colleagues have, have a lot of thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I'll just be quick here because I know we're, we're running low on time. I mean, I think one of the, the 
things I would mention is immigration, which is obviously a big factor that a lot of folks point to to say, well, Canadian housing can't really go down that far because we have all these people coming to the country. It's true we're getting a lot of immigration. It doesn't really make sense to me that that's going to keep the housing market from going down. And the reason is, so first you look at the data, we have about half a million people coming to Canada, two and a half people a household on average. That's about 200,000 new homes that we need every year. We're building 280 a year. So there's plenty of supply coming on. Um, there's no shortage in terms of actual units of housing for people. What there is is a shortage of affordable housing. So where is the demand that's made it unaffordable? It can't have come from immigration. Because if you look at the pattern of price changes, you had all the big price gains through the pandemic when there was no immigration, because nobody could move. <laughs> and now, over the last year, you've had record immigration and prices have fallen. It doesn't make sense that it's the immigration driving the prices. What it has been at the margin is investor demand, and that's foreign demand. That's domestic as well, investment and, and some speculation, to be sure. That was founded upon cheap money and expectations of price gains forever. And both of those have now gone away. So we're going to see that demand mitigated and, and a lot of it taken out of the market. We already have seen that. But as I mentioned earlier, it takes a long time for housing markets to clear. So I think we're in for a period of pressure, but it's probably going to take quite some time to, to manifest itself. David, David and Alon, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.